and welcome to Should I Stay or Should I Go? The podcast providing you with expert career insight and advice from senior people in the fields of insurance and risk management to help you make the right career decisions. Hosted by founder and managing partner of Key Strategies LLC, Mike Tenenbaum. Featuring interviews with those at the top of their game, each podcast explores topical issues, coupled with specialist guidance on making your next move in the corporate risk management, insurance brokerage, and the insurance carrier sectors. A seasoned recruiter, Mike Tenenbaum has over 30 years of experience in sourcing top insurance and risk management talent for world-class Fortune 500 companies throughout the US. This experience makes your host the perfect person to kickstart the conversations that will give you the wisdom you need to decide, should I stay or should I go? I am joined today by uh, Ward Ching, who is Managing Director at Aon. And Ward, welcome to the show. Michael, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity for this conversation. Well, thank you, Ward. It's a real pleasure for me and an honor for me to have you on the show. Um, we've known each other. I keep saying this, you know, a long time. I feel like I'm getting a little old because I know a lot of people for a long time. And uh, <laughs> and you and I go, go back to, uh, I forget when we first met, but as I recall, you were involved in enterprise risk quite a lot back then. And we'll get into that a little bit. I was hoping that uh, you could share with us a little bit about how you got into the business. Michael, it was, it's really a strange story. Back in 1978, 79, so that gives your listeners a good feel for how old I am, I was finishing up my graduate studies in preparation for my PhD at USC in international relations and economics, and I was about ready to start moving forward with my dissertation process, and I, I had made some decisions about what I wanted to do from an academic and teaching point of view. I needed to increase my teaching load for economic purposes. And then the, the chair of my, my then examining committee said, you know what, your work is in game theory, your work is in risk analysis. At the time, there was a high demand in the banking community around doing country studies, country risk studies, and for lending purposes, for credit purposes, for country stability purposes. And he said, you know, it would be really kind of interesting. You can stay an academic, but what if you got out into the business world and got involved with something like that. Uh, that would help, certainly from an economic standpoint. So I started interviewing in the fall of, of 2000, excuse me, uh, uh, 1978 in the local uh, Southern California banking community and had landed a position with one of the largest banks there uh, to become an international economist. And about a week before I was supposed to take the job, my committee chair left me a note and said, come in and talk to me. I got one more interview for you. And I said, fine. So I came in. He said, I've got one more interview, and it's with a company called Martian McLennan. And I said, okay, what do they do? He told me. And I said, not interested. He said, well, why not? He said, well, because I don't know anything about insurance, and I'm not sure I know. I want to know anything about insurance. And he said, no, you don't understand. They have a consulting operation at the time called RMS, Risk Management Services, and they're really kind of like a RAND corporation. They do high-level studies. They do a lot of quantitative work. The kinds of skills that you bring to the table might be interesting to them. And I said, no. He said, well, they, they also have a deck or digital equipment, deck 2060 mainframe that you can do your research on. And I said, hmm. 
because at the time I was programming in Fortran and COBOL with cards. Mm. Remember wow. punch cards, right? Oh my God. Yeah. And if you dropped your cards, you were in trouble. So I thought, oh, if they've got a database system, that might be kind of interesting. But then I said, no. Then he said, well, there are 11 guys from the UCLA business school going, and I want to put up two of us from USC. And I said, okay, I'll go just for that. Because mm -hmm. as you know, USC and UCLA are so competitive. I said, okay, I, I know that I've got a position in hand with a bank. I'm going to go in and help my colleague um, get the job. And I'll knock out the guys from UCLA just, you know, just for fun. Hmm. And, and, <laughs> and so I went to the interview, started about midday. And the guy that interviewed me, who is no longer with us, a guy by the name of Charles Proctor, uh, had done a lot of work in satellite insurance, really interesting guy. And, and we were talking about research, things that I was doing. And I told him that I was involved with a, I was supporting another PhD candidate in a study on Vietnam. And he said that he wanted to talk to me about Vietnam for a number of historical reasons on his side. He, he was attached in the war to the Air Force and had some other interesting background. Let's just say it that way. And, and so we spent the next six hours talking about Vietnam. Nothing to do with risk management. Had everything to do about Vietnam, the Pentagon Papers, uh, how the war proceeded, etc. And then at the end of those six hours, he said, show up on Monday. And I said, why? And he said, because you have the skills and background that we think would work here in our consulting organization. And I said, well, why? And he said, shut up and show up. <laughs> and I did. Wow. And, and uh, I was put through a boot camp. I, I, I was trained to be a, um, a general management consultant. We worked on the insurance was not the critical issue. It was really about problem definition. It was really about how to use tools and capabilities to solve complex risk problems. And at the time, Marsh was very focused on the question of what is the next generation of risk issue. Now, remember, this is 1978-79. This is pre-ACE and Excel. This is pre-situation, you know, the, the difficult situations at Lloyd's. This was a hard market, harder than it is now. Uh, this is the, the, the end of the Carter administration going into the Reagan administration. So remember all of that. So it was a very, very different time and there was a transition taking place. The individuals who had gone into the insurance space, the brokerage firms, the accounting firms, the uh, carrier firms, were retiring. So they needed another generation of risk professionals, and we were the ones being recruited. So I joined RMS, which were 80 consultants in New York, Chicago, and LA, and that's how everything started. Wow, that's quite a story. So um, I'm curious, what you learned from that interviewing experience. Is that how you interview people now? I do. I do. I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm interested in when, when I'm recruiting to the firm or recruiting to a team, I'm interested not only in the skill issues, but I'm interested in how do you think? How do you deal with adverse situations? How do you enjoy yourself in this project? What new skills and capabilities that may have nothing to do with the project might contribute to the outcome of the project. Most of my teams, if you talk to the people that have worked with me, we are really capable and really good at what we do, but we also have a lot of fun. We joke with each other, we play tricks on each other. It's all about how do we get the best out of each other for the client and for the project at hand. And I'm looking for that little sliver of difference 
that helps us think about the problem a little bit differently. I want to look around the corner a little bit uh, more persuasively, a little with a longer eye. I'm interested in the disruptor. So I build teams with people who have different points of view, who can articulate and argue those different points of view. But we all we all play towards making sure that the customer issues are center and and most important and and get the job done the right way. That's great. That's great. You know, I was actually um, talking with Dave Arick about that in uh, my one of my previous podcast episodes, and we talked about you know the difference between you know hiring people who think like you do, and hiring people who think differently, and and would be more complementary. And you know, Dave, I think would agree with you that you know it's it's ideal to get people who bring different ways of looking at things on the team. That makes perfect sense to me. The trick is though, you know, as a manager. How do you manage people who really approach things so differently and who may just have different drivers that, that get them going? Yeah. In my, in my case, um, most of my teams, and I refer to them as hot teams, play by the same rules. Rule number one is that when you learn something about the project, everybody learns something about the project. So communications is absolutely important. There are no, no dark corners. There are no closed file cabinets. Everybody's open, transparent all the time, number one. Number two, the client objective is the objective. Our ability to demonstrate that we know something or we have a new skill or capability or we're smarter than somebody is irrelevant. It's all about the client project. Number three, we plan the projects very carefully. We use either scrum technique or sprint technique or several other techniques that we can we can use to move the projects along making sure that the individuals who have skills are applying those skills appropriately. And we've got, we've got the classic project management sort of background and, and toolkit uh, so that we can see where everybody is, where everybody's going. We can communicate quickly with one another. And most importantly, it's okay to argue. There is no problem with the team sitting down and saying, I've got an issue here, or I see a project risk, or I, I see a conclusion differently. Okay, let's argue it out. Let, and by the way, the egos are checked at the door. The minute an ego starts to, to play a role, you, you start introducing bias. And, and I'm, I'm the one that's going to call it right away. I'm going to say, we've got confirmation bias here. We've got some other kind of bias here. Let's understand that and then move on. But the idea is I'm promoting competition amongst the team members. I'm looking for the better answers. And I will, I will challenge and I encourage everybody to challenge each other around techniques, around approach, around how we communicate with the client and with others. But more, but, but most importantly, it's okay to argue. It's absolutely okay to argue. And when we're done arguing, we take a vote. Are we moving in this direction or that direction? And once the vote's taken, we move. So we play by rules. That makes sense to me. I think in practicality, you really do have to have the right team members to be able to do that effectively. And it's, it's hard. I think as a recruiter, I, I'm looking for certain skills just like you are as the hiring manager. And it's hard sometimes to know how somebody will function in that kind of an environment, you know, because interviews are, are especially an interview for someone like that is going to be somewhat unstructured, I think, and more open ended questions and more, you know, maybe tell me how you would handle this kind of situation or talk to me about a, a project that you worked on. Is that kind of how you do it? Yeah, I do. Um, but I also ask a couple of questions that most people don't. The first is, what makes you angry? And I'll let them tell me. What makes you angry? The second one, which is really kind of interesting, because I'm interested not only in 
how you think about a problem, but whether or not you can tell a story, because in many cases, what we're doing is using tools, techniques, frameworks, analytics, et cetera, to tell a complex story simply. So I ask the question, what is your passion? And they'll tell me and I'll say, okay, here's a marker. Go to that whiteboard, draw me your passion. Tell me a story about your passion. And they, if you can do that, you're on the team. If you're, if you can't do that, I mean, I don't care about your artwork. I care about the story. Tell me a story. Because as you know, Michael, in, in business, we do lots and lots of reports. We do lots and lots of communication, but most of it is rubbish. Most of it doesn't stick. Why? Because we're quoting facts and figures. We are not telling stories. We are not using uh, our tools in such a way that the audience can tell the story again to your satisfaction. So what I'm interested in is, can you tell me a story? Can I remember your story? Can, can your story be adapted to something relevant to a client or your storytelling techniques? That's important, which is why I asked the question, what is your passion? You tell me your passion. All right. Now go draw it. Tell me a story about your passion. And if you, if you make it through that, you're going to make it on the team. Well, you know, I'm getting like sweaty palms just thinking about that. Because... <laughs> <laughs> so, Michael, what would you, what would you, how would you answer that question? Well, Maybe I'll another time. <laughs> I'll, t I'll tell you this. I could answer the question, but to draw it would be a whole nother level of stress for me. I Just... had, I had a woman who was, who was working out on a team whose passion was dance. And I said, that's wonderful. Draw it. She did. She drew a dancer. But what she was showing me when she was drawing was, how do your feet go? How do you prepare for this? What does my season look like? What do I wear? How do, how do I compete? How do I work with different partners? How do I create a good experience for the audience? She told me a story as she was drawing. Guess what? She was on the team. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. I was just thinking about some of my early artwork and uh, <laughs> what, yeah. what my what my story is versus what the artwork says would be completely different stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very clearly. So, so I, I would hope that you would uh, find another way to see that I have more potential than that. But, <laughs> so, so that's interesting, though. So you're really you're getting people to think. And you're challenging them to express themselves in uh, what I would argue is a very, very non-traditional way, which is great. So, so you, in other words, you don't fall back on the typical, you know, what do you want to be in five year questions? I don't know what I'm going to be in five years. How, how do I expect somebody else to know what they're going to be in five years? Especially nowadays. I mean, five years from now, who, who knows what we're looking at? Exactly. But what I'm interested in is what is your vision of growth? What is your vision of accomplishment? What disappointments in your life have you used to, to either take a new direction or to improve skills and capabilities? And it may be a, a, a disappointment that's not yours, but somewhere else in your life. Tell me a story about that. Uh, how did you overcome it? What did you learn from it? How did you teach someone else? Because one of the rules on my teams is you have to you have to look forward to being with a group of people for which you make them better every day. All right. So it's not making you better. It's making them better. And I can see that in the way that teams work. And then you've seen it, too. Right. You can see smooth running teams and crunchy running teams. It's almost like 
and we're now in the middle of an early baseball season, turning a good double play. You know a team is well-coached and well-trained by just watching the way they turn double play in practice. All right? Where are their hands? Ball position. How did they make the throw? Where were their feet? Where were their hips? What was that glove position at the end of their throw? How did they follow through? How did they anticipate runner coming? All of those things will tell you, as a coach, which is what I would be, whether or not this is a, good, a well-run team. I mean, I, I used to say to my colleagues, uh, and I'm a, I'm a former baseball, high school baseball coach, I can tell whether or not the opposition team is well-coached by the way they play catch. Do, where do they catch the ball? How are their hands? Where are their hips? How do they wear their uniforms? How do they wear their hats? All of that stuff tells me whether or not that's a good team or whether or not there's an opportunity to exploit a weakness. And, and that's what we do on my teams, and that's what I look for in skills. Can I put you in play and have you turn a nice, smooth double play? That's great. So your focus has always been more on the consulting side right from the beginning. And so that's a different type of a mindset than someone who is an individual contributor in a risk management department. What I'd be interested in, and I think what the what our audience would be interested in hearing about is from a consultative standpoint, how did you uh, ultimately find yourself involved in enterprise risk? And what does enterprise risk really mean to you? Enterprise risk management has been, at least in terms of a formal discipline, around since the early to mid-1980s. And, and really what enterprise risk has, has grown from is really the recognition that there are risk domains in a business environment or in an organizational environment that are beyond the hazard risks. So back in the early, in the early stages, the question was, what are the behaviors, what are the attributes, what are the processes that contribute to loss? So from a classic risk management standpoint, you're looking at risk identification, risk measurement, and risk mitigation, right? Those are the three basic standards. The question is, does a hazard risk profile differ from an operational risk profile as opposed to a human capital risk profile? And so where enterprise risk management really came from was recognizing that there are several domains. And the way, and the way that I got trained was to think of it, think of risk in risk management in terms of hazard, hazard, operational, market, human capital, and reputational risk. So the hazard risk domain were all of the classic insurable risks. So property, casualty, workers' compensation, DNO, fiduciary coverages, all that stuff that you would typically either self-insure or insure in the traditional marketplace. The second space was operational. So what are the, what are the material risks to the enterprise that could prevent it from reaching its objective from an operational point of view? That could be internal systems, it could be leadership, it could be communication, it could be its, in, its internal structure, its financial systems, et cetera. The third is market. What are the material market risks, in other words, those risks outside the organization that could materially impact the organization one way or the other? It could be regulatory, it could be new competitors, it could be new products. As we see now, it could be a pandemic. It could be lots of different things, but living outside the organization. The, the, the next is, is human capital. With respect to your talent, with respect to the people that make your business run, what are the risks that prevent them from potentially driving the core objectives? And so it's everything from your, your, your HR systems to how do you manage talent, how do you recruit, how do you do all of that sort of stuff? And then lastly, reputation. 
what are the reputational drivers that either promote or take away from your organization's downstream objectives? These various risk domains have different probability distributions. Different, you have different ways of looking at them. Question is, statistically, how do you blend them together? Because all of these together, and perhaps some other risk areas, um, contribute to your overall risk profile. And the question that I was asking and others were asking at the time was, what are the material risks to the enterprise? How do I see these risks? How do I measure these risks? How do I understand the economic impact of these risks? And what does that mean to strategy? What, what does it mean in terms of informing senior leadership around goals, objectives, um, you know, your core KPIs, all that sort of stuff? And so our earliest sort of discussions are around this notion of a risk map. Where, where you had a two by two matrix, low, high, low, high over frequency and severity, and you had materiality thresholds, and you were placing risks that you and others in the organization were discovering and talking about on this map. And, and at the time, we were using, those of us that were practitioners, were using sort of the actuarial perspective around whether or not something's real or something's not. And the first issue was, can you define this risk? Can you actually see it, define it, write it down. The second is, can you measure it in terms of its economic impact? In other words, can you put a dollar value to that risk, that defined risk? And lastly, can you see it over time? So it's not just a one-time blip, but can you see this moving over a period of time? If one or more of those criteria were not in place when you identify a risk, you could simply say that that risk was anecdotal, keep it off the map, and when it did qualify, you brought it on. So, so what we were really trying to do early on was understand a larger um, playing field. And, and from there, we moved to more quantitative assessment. So how do we do simulation and volatility analysis around one of these quadrants or more of these quadrants? How do we see the autocorrelation or non-correlation of these risks relative to some downstream target like EBITDA? or ROI, ROE, market share, uh, earnings per share, that sort of thing. And, and that, that really started in, in the mid-1980s and grew right through the 1990s as our computing capability got better, our statistical analysis got better, our ability to see trends and in information differently in the risk management data got better, and as we started connecting the dots between hazard risk, operational market, human capital, and reputational risk profiles. From there, you, you saw significant changes in society. So you saw the financial collapse in 2007. You saw changes in the way organizations uh, performed, the Enrons and others of the world. So there, there was a, a different emphasis then on, on what does risk actually mean? We're not just interested in identifying stuff. We're interested in velocity. How fast is it coming? And then, of course, you started seeing the literature around black swan. And you started asking questions around what are those real perturbations way out in the tails of these probability distributions? And what is, what is the relationship between risk and ruin? So from there, you started seeing standards being developed. So you have the COSO standard and you have the ISO 31000 standard, all of which have a very strong focus on audit-related activity and and process as you come forward today there are several of us that are continuing to look at the tools and techniques of of enterprise risk management which extend into risk maturity indexes 
and and uh, risk appetite and and you know other sorts of maturity models and quantitative models, and are asking the question: Given what we've just seen with COVID nineteen, are those tools effective? And the answer is yes for some, no for others, and it's not clear which is which just now. I'm I'm currently doing some work with a colleague of mine at St. John's around this very specific issue. If we look at the risk management space as a disruptive environment, what does, what does enterprise risk, min, min, risk management mean to an organization that is the disruptor versus the organization that is the disrupted? So if you look at the new economy space and you look at the digital economy companies that are coming on stream, they don't have any legacy issues. They, they, they have new technologies that they're prosecuting really quite rapidly. Do they do enterprise risk management? No. Are there targets, those organizations that have done enterprise risk management? Yes. So a question that's intellectually very interesting right now, and it has both a quantitative and qualitative framework to it, and that is, does enterprise risk management, as, as we know the world today, how does enterprise risk management help you see around the corner more effectively, or does it? And it, it, it is a, is a lively debate right now. There are lots of people out there that are arguing one side or the other, and that's good because I think we were taken by surprise, many of us who are in the, in the ERM space around COVID-19. There's no question that organizations saw a pandemic as an issue. They had no idea where it potentially could have come from and how it could have shut them down. And now they're asking the question, what else could be out there? I've, I've argued to several of my colleagues that we think that the, the black swan event is one black swan. And I got news for you. There are a flock of black swans sitting, sitting in the corner of the pond over there and they're swimming in our direction. The question is, where are they? How broadly are they arrayed on the lake? And how quickly are they getting here? Can we see them? And by definition, you shouldn't necessarily see a, a black swan event. But the point is, we now know what the kinds of feel like. Now, can enterprise risk management help us, uh, give us maybe you know night vision goggles so we can see things? Can it help us describe conditions under which these various risk domains now have autocorrelation or some degree of correlation so that we can inform and support senior leadership's ability to anticipate these issues better? More importantly, can we put some numbers to it? Can we put some probabilities to it? Can we put some mitigation costs to it? Most of the largest organizations today are asking these questions because they got blindsided. And even, even in their business continuity planning analysis, which is another form of applied enterprise risk management, they were blindsided. They had no idea what was coming at them and what would happen next. And it's going to impact not just specific industries, but it's going to impact the supply chain surrounding those industries. So think about it for a moment. Everybody is, at, is sheltering at home. Who's in the large high-rise office buildings? Nobody. Okay, who supports the office buildings? The janitors and the restaurants and public transportation and all of the things that support people who are in those buildings on a day-in and day-out basis. That's all gone too. So it's not just, you know, we've impacted the building, but we've impacted two standard deviations around it in terms of the supply chain. How does that recover? That's where enterprise risk management needs to go. Yeah. So, I mean, 
these are all very, very real examples that you're that you're giving here. There's so many different directions that you can go with these things, but we are right in the thick of it now. And I think that the first thought that I had about pandemic was to me, planning for it seemed very similar to a business continuity plan, you know, such as, you know, a major event that prevented you from getting into the office. And now, you know, you had to work remotely on a, you know, a full-time basis for some period of time. I don't think that any organization necessarily envisioned being out of the office for this amount of time. Now, now again, going back to my notion of are you the disruptor or are you the disrupted, if you're in an office building in a traditional sort of way, you're the disrupted. You've been impacted. You're now responding as best you can. But if you're the disruptor, let's say you are a streaming business or you are a uh, business that promotes uh, and puts together communications platforms, you're, you're, you're exploiting this opportunity now because this is your chance, right? And, and what, with every sort of major issue like we've had with this pandemic and other natural events, world wars, all of those sorts of things, these big disruptive events in the past, we have found significant opportunities for innovation and for structural change. We saw it after the Black Death. We saw it after World War I, World War II. We saw it after uh, the various flu epidemics. We saw improvements in infrastructure. We saw improvements in that in transportation. We saw improvements in technologies. Today, we're seeing incredible improvements in, in how to support people who are working from home and new supply systems that are coming on stream, new streaming systems that are coming on stream, 5G and beyond is going to significantly improve the way we communicate with one another. I was just on the phone with a colleague, actually with a client, and and um, we are getting ready for a European underwriters meeting. If we had done it the traditional way, and we would be spending a week in London, let's say, and we would be doing two, three, four, five presentations a day, right? Well, this time around, we're going to be all remote. We have the presentations ready to go. We will have 70 carriers in the room at the same time. We couldn't do that in a traditional context. We can do it now. Now, the question is, how impactful is that? What we're finding is over the last three, four months, that kind of activity has been hugely impactful. Productivity has been hugely impactful. Um, so the innovations that are going to come out of this and I agree, there's a lot of dislocation out there. The societal situation is not necessarily good globally, but we will pull through. I'm, I'm confident that we will. And the newer technologies are going to inform the way we work, the way we live, the way we interact. And in many cases, it will be better. Yeah, I, I, I could totally see the positive side of things. When you tell that story about you know your underwriter meetings, I'm thinking, well, gee, that's not so good for the airlines. Because they they depend on all those trips. True, or the ho or the hotels, or the restaurants, or the whatever. But but the but the, all of that infrastructure is still there. The question is, how do they adapt? And they will. That is absolutely the question, and I agree, they will adapt. So you know, uh, one other thing I wanted to cover when you're you're talking about ERM and you're talking about you know really understanding your risks and 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 the point you make about being the disrupted versus being the disruptor i think those are great points as a risk manager you're faced with a number of different types of challenges from the day-to-day -day insurance challenges that you face to claims issues safety issues you know if that's part of your responsibility 
And then you have the ERM challenges and being more strategic and more relevant in the uh, in the C-suite. What are some of the things from your standpoint, if you're advising a risk manager who has been primarily insurance focused, and now they want to become more ERM focused, what are the, some of the things that you would advise them to do to, and what skills do they need to develop to be able to make that leap? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question because that transition is taking place everywhere right now. And, and I think I've been fortunate in the sense that I've been on the other side of the table and I've been the insured. I've been in the risk manager's shoes. I worked for many years with several great colleagues at Safeway, which was at the time uh, the second largest grocery chain in the country with the operations in Canada and in Mexico. And we had exactly that challenge. How do we take an organization that does extraordinarily well in terms of its supply chain, in terms of getting groceries to the table, et cetera, how, how do we think more strategically? How do we deal with severe workers' compensation issues, severe general liability issues with big property exposures? How do you, how do you deal with that and help management to understand all of these issues and, and move forward? The, the, the skill set, I think, first of all, is recognizing that the classic risk management skills and frameworks are useful, but they need to be adapted to the environment that you're in. So you need to use the language of your business, your core business, uh, not just the language of risk management, as a way to communicate new thoughts and approaches. So for example, when I was at Safeway, when we were looking at workers' compensation and losses in, in a grocery store, right, of which there could be several, I didn't talk to the I didn't talk to the store manager about workers' compensation loss, about a claim. I talked to them about shrink because they understood what shrink was. They understood the economic impact of shrink. And when I defined that workplace injury as another as, as shrink, they immediately understood what to do. So the first thing I tried to do was, was adopt the language that you're in. Take your risk management skills and capabilities and adapt to that language. The second is understand the environment economically. So where are the sources of revenue? Where are the sources of loss? How does that move? How does decision-making move in that context? To, to use a phrase that I, I use a lot, um, um, look at your hazard operational risk categories, do the math around what's there, and then translate that again into the language of that, of that business. Third, really learn to communicate um, simply and straightforwardly. Stay on point. We have a tendency in risk management to get lost in our language. Many technical industries have the same thing, but we have an archaic language that nobody seems to understand. What we have to do is learn to communicate clearly, learn to communicate to targets, learn to communicate to outcomes. So, so for example, when I was at Safeway, a question that was being asked is, how do we eliminate historical loss you know, from a self-insured basis off the balance sheet? Well, there are ways to do that, but more importantly, that loss is going to come back if you don't focus on loss control and safety. All right. So if we did do that, what would happen? Well, we could take $40 million, let's say, if we move the frequency rate from point A to point B, we can take, in this case, 10 to $40 million off of the cost. And that's just direct cost. If we look at indirect at three to one, do the math, that's a lot of money. So, the, so when you're getting senior leadership's attention, 
drive to the economics, show them what the ROI, ROE will look like, show them what the investment needs to look like. And then lastly, execute, execute, execute. The skill sets are really around a dogged determination to get things done, listen carefully to your customer base, adapt to your customer base, but most importantly, show them the targets and show them how to get to those targets. And from an enterprise risk management standpoint, uh, I would say that the skill set is building as many constructive alliances within the organization as possible. So if you're in the risk management space, fundamentally with insurance, really get to know audit, really get to know internal audit, really get to know the rest of finance and legal and more importantly, operations. Because what you're really looking for is, is broadening your frame of reference and connecting the dots between something that you might see on the shop floor with something that you might see on a loss run. And what you're trying to do is connect the dots effectively so that they can improve. So again, build as broad an alliance base as you can and get out there and be as active and as visible as possible. Great advice. Great advice. You you hit on everything that I've heard many other people talk about in, in different pieces, but you wrapped it all up nicely. So thanks for that. Uh, I have one last question for you, and then uh, I'll, uh, I'll let you go. I w- wanted to touch on the RIM CRMP designation because I know you've been involved with that, and I thought you know we could uh, spend a minute just talking about what that is, what the value of, of that certification is, and uh, and how you feel about it. Yep, the RIMS CRMP, which stands for Certified Risk Management Professional Certification, is the only ANSI standard certification in the marketplace. And and really what it does is it, it it's for the individual that has been in the business three, four years, has some experience in behind them, but who's looking to impact their organization at the strategic level. So the difference between that certification and everything else that's out there and all of those other designations and and approaches are wonderful because they provide you with good underwriting skills, good technical insurance skills, good financial skills. And in some cases, there's an enterprise risk management module. But the question is, all right, so how do you apply this stuff? And what the CRMP is really designed to do is bring an additional literature base to the table and a practicum to the table that helps you drive strategy. And, and the, the certification is accomplished through taking an exam. There is a curriculum sitting behind the exam. Most of it you can prepare for in, you know, three, four, five, six months, perhaps. And once you have that designation, it really separates you from everybody else with respect to your knowledge base. It signals that you have a strategic background. It signals that you understand the domain issues associated with enterprise risk. It signals that you understand COSO and ISO 31000 and portfolio theory. It signals that you are aware of and are capable of really using analytic tools as a way to describe new risk profiles and issues. And lastly, you understand how to apply this within the the business plan and and the corporate structure that you're working with. So it, it separates you from the others because of that strategic perspective. It's a designation that, or excuse me, certification that you renew. It's something that you can put at when you're when you're awarded the the certification. You can put it on your cards. You can put it on your logos. You can do it whatever you want with it. But the point is, it's it's a different way of looking at the problem, and it continues to evolve. I happen to be currently vice chair, but will be chair of the CRMP commission in January, 
And I can tell you that my colleagues are all from the enterprise risk management space, some of the best in the country. They come from academic environments as well as um, business environments. We even have a designation around governmental entity. It's a micro-credential. But the idea here is that we're continuously evolving our understanding of risk, enterprise risk, and how it relates to strategy. And we're continuing to do research and writing in this area as well. It's, it's, a, it's a useful tool and credential to have. And I encourage people who, have, who are starting in their careers now, two or three years in, really getting their feet wet. It doesn't matter if you're on the broking side, the underwriting side, the claim side, it doesn't matter. Is it, it gives you a perspective on strategy that you will not see elsewhere. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Ward, that was really great. I really appreciate all your time and insights here. And I think that like myself, probably the audience has gained quite a bit from this. So thank you very much. And we'll be talking to you again soon. Michael, it was terrific. Thank you for the opportunity. My pleasure. You have a great day. Thank you for listening to Should I Stay or Should I Go? Brought to you by Key Strategies LLC, the US insurance and risk management recruitment specialists. If you like the show, please be sure to subscribe, like, and leave reviews. Every time you do, it helps others find the show. And if you have any specific career-related questions, please post them or send an email directly to Mike at mtenenbaum at keystrategies.com. He may even answer your question on the show. When you subscribe, you'll also get notifications of when the next episode is available. Hope you join us next time.